Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. I have often mentioned my children in this podcast, but what I don't often talk about is the fact that I also have a brother, Leslie. Now, despite the fact that we have the same parents and were raised in the same place, we're different from each other. Okay, there are similarities. We are both bearded, for example, and people often say they can see that we are brothers. Something I usually see as a compliment for him and an insult to me. And to be honest, there are aspects that have become more similar as time goes by. Bodybuild, for example. My brother started going to the gym in his later years, whilst I have allowed middle age to be cruel to me. Moving from someone who once tried out for the TV show Gladiators to someone who would get breathless watching it. Or, as someone once crudely said to me, Jim, when I first met you, you had the figure of a professional football player. Now you have the figure of a professional football Despite the genetic common ground, there are differences between my brother and I, and they go back to our childhood. Whilst he was happy to stay at home, I wandered the streets and the marshlands. While he had a near photographic memory and did well at school, I have an appalling memory and a high truancy record, to the point where one of my school reports just asks, who? Question mark. My brother went to grammar school, but I was in the first year in which grammar school stopped and secondary comprehensives began. My brother loved science and ended up working in a laboratory. I could only muster a slight fascination for things that made explosives and ended up working in psychiatric nursing. I could go on, but the point is... Despite our shared past, both in nature and nurture, we are very different in very many ways. And that statement of difference takes us into the focus of this week's podcast. There are whiskies that are from the same family tree in many ways, and in many ways are different. Now, in past episodes, I've looked at Tobermory, who also produced the Chig, a very different whisky. I've also mentioned Brook Laddie and the development of the Port Charlotte range. There's Aaron Distillery and their product of Macri Moor. It's yet, it's yet one more example. And as for any American whisky that shares some genetics with the Beam family, well, that's a subject not for another episode. It's enough there for its own series. And if Mark Gillespie's listening, it was my idea first, okay? You've got enough going on. And your reports from Whiskey Live Paris, as good as they were, nearly made me cry with envy. Anyway, getting back to today's episode. One example of this factor is Glenfiddich and Belvini. Related, yet so very different. But different in ways that are more than the fact that one might be petered and the other one not. Even some of the promotional material is chalk and cheese, the Glenfiddich's advertising bump being 
dark in colour, shiny, smooth. The Belvini tending to be more of a light cream, matte and textured format. The bottle shape also makes its difference known. Glenfiddich, tall, coloured glass and a characteristic triangular-shaped bottle. Practical for shipping. The Belvini, clear glass. Clear glass and a bottle shape that is more squat and rounded. And the labels matching the bump. One is dark and shiny, the other is light and textured. Both distilleries have the same founder, William Grant. First, it was Glenfiddich which at the age of 47 he built himself, brick by brick, buying equipment from Cardo Distillery and getting experiences in distilling it from Mortlake Distillery. And that distilled for the first time Christmas Day 1887. Belvini came later, 1892. This time not built brick by brick, but a conversion of a manor house, the Belvini New House, which was initially to be called Glen Gordon, and include equipment from Lagavulin and Glen Albin. First distillation, May, the following year. So we have the same founder and the same location, or as near as Dammit. They are very close and use the same water source, the Robbie Dew Spring. Like me and my brother, we have the foundations, now look at the alternatives. My parents were at different stages of their lives when they had me and my brother. They had different set of experiences, the difference in years between my brother and I about the same as Glenfiddich and Belvini. Those different experiences, knowledge and times could be what set us onto different paths. The same applies to these distilleries. So let's look at it from the basics. Fermentation from different barley varieties and different times, with Glenfiddich being the longer, but with Belvini being the product of their own maltings. Distillation. Glenfiddich still has a direct gas-fired still, whereas Belvini uses steam coils. The stills themselves, well, Belvini have got reflux bowls both in the wash still and the spirit still. Glenfiddich have got no reflux bowls and descending line arms on the wash stills, but they do have constriction and reflux bowls on the spirit stills, again having descending line arms. And so the differences start to mount up. But so much flavour comes from the wood, and it is in wood management that even more differences can be found. Now last week, I played a small snippet from an interview with Belvini's Andrew Forrester, and I'm going to play this interval in full in just a moment. But first, I want to say that Glenfiddich is a fine and popular whiskey. I personally think it is, it is great and has suffered from its own success. The more successful something is, the more people want to knock it down. Belvini is often in the top five favourites when I talk to people about whisky. It is very different from its sister, and it's as individual from Glenfiddich as I like to think I am from my brother. My brother and I are two individual, separate people. And at first glance, there might be some similarity, but it doesn't take much to find that we are unique, individual, and very different. 
The same goes with these whiskies. Quick look at the history book. You can see that they've got a common a commonality with them. However, it doesn't take much to realise that what we have here are two very different whiskies. But they're whiskies that have had impacts upon many people, including Curtis from ScotchCinema.com. Hi everybody, it's Curtis here again from ScotchCinema.com with another Malt Movie Minute. Uh, this time around I'd like to talk about Balvenie. It has popped up in a number of films over the years and was actually the inspiration for me to start a website dedicated to Scotch sightings in movies and TV shows. I was sitting in a movie theater one evening, I guess maybe six, seven, eight months ago, watching uh, the movie The Lincoln Lawyer, starring Matthew McConaughey, which I loved, by the way. Uh, about halfway through the film, McConaughey has this great scene with William H. Macy where he's going over the particulars of a case that they're both working on. He's a little tipsy, you know, he's staggering around the room while talking to uh, William H. Macy's character, and he's drinking from this bottle of Lord knows what. And I was leaning forward in my seat in the theater, squinting, trying to identify what exactly it was he was drinking. I knew it was scotch of some kind. Uh, then finally I was able to barely make out the word Balvenie on the label. Uh, there was also a brief Glenn Fittick appearance later in the film, if I remember correctly. But this actual attempt at identifying a specific whiskey wasn't the first for me, not by a long shot. There have been countless movies and shows which had prompted me to hit the rewind and the, and the pause button in order to spot a certain brand. After watching The Lincoln Lawyer, I'd found myself at home searching online for other scotch appearances, and to my surprise, there was a seemingly endless stream of appearances. I found Facebook groups, message boards, articles, and comment sections, all mentioning various on-screen whiskey cameos in different films throughout the years. Uh, the only thing missing was a dedicated site where the hundreds, and now shockingly tens of thousands, of my fellow whiskey detectives could enjoy all of these scenes at once without searching high and low. Uh, and now here we are, on the Malted Muse podcast, discussing the Speyside single malt which started it all, the Balvenie. Uh, there's actually two other Balvenie appearances over at scotchcinema.com that you might like to check out. One is from the 2004 uh, disaster film entitled The Day After Tomorrow. You can spot the whiskey a little over an hour into the film. Uh, the Balvenie is actually the focus of that particular scene as opposed to simply being used as window dressing. Uh, it's actually kind of integral to that scene. It's a pretty funny scene too. You'll see what I mean when you check out the uh, clip. Uh, moving on from a disaster movie to a movie which is a disaster in itself. The 2000 film Edison, starring Morgan Freeman, Kevin Spacey, and Justin Timberlake. Uh, this, uh, the Balvenie can be spotted three separate times in this movie, and I am not joking when I say that it is the only good thing about this film. Watching the movie Edison is like watching a movie made up entirely of deleted scenes. It's that bad. I would have to be hooked up to a Balvenie IV in order to sit through a second viewing of this movie. Uh, luckily, I have done all the dirty work for you, and I've condensed the film down to only the Scotch sightings, which will take just a few short minutes to watch. And I'd like to thank, uh, once again, Jim for giving me a few short minutes to uh, blab about these different sightings in movies uh, so that I can share them with all you devoted Malt Muse listeners. So uh, enjoy the rest of the show, everybody, and thanks again. Bye-bye for now.
Andrew, you've just come back from the whiskey show, and I believe there you provided two dream drams for people to taste. Look, sadly, I wasn't able to go. I never had the chance to try them. So tell me a little bit about those dream drams and just how well they went down. Jim, you can probably tell uh, by my horse throat, actually. Um, I have been at the whiskey show for uh, two days, uh, trying to uh, shout above the noise of a thousand other people in a room or enjoying whiskey. Uh, with a bit of a cold. Um, the Dream Drums, well, uh, we were tasked with taking uh, something really special to the whiskey show for people to try. Um, something, you know, maybe something very old, something very expensive, something very rare. So lots of distillers had shown up with, uh, you know, their 40-year-old 40, their 40 expressions or something very unusual or vintage expression. I was a bit of a loss what to take for the Balvenie. Um, and... Uh, because I didn't want to just uh, do the normal, which is, you know, and the predictable. Um, that's just not me. So I thought, well, maybe we could make something special for the show. So I contacted David Stewart. David Stewart's our, um, our malt master. He's the guy who makes all of the Balvini. And uh, I asked him if, he would be, if he'd be able to create a special whiskey just for the show so that people who came to the show tried to make genuinely and truly unique. Um, so David was excited to do this, as he always is. Uh, so David selected three casks from uh, from one of the warehouses at Belvenny. I think it was Warehouse 24, where we take visitors to see our old and rare casks. All of those casks were sherry butts. They all contained whiskey that was originally distilled in the, uh, the early 1970s. I think there was one cask from 1972 and one uh, with whiskey in it distilled in, and two distilled in 1976. Anyway, that whiskey had been maturing in traditional American oak bourbon barrels for a period of time. And then at some point, David will have vatted that whiskey and uh, transferred it to these sherry butts. So we've got essentially three sherry butts with mature whiskey in them, very, very old whiskey, 35 and 39-year-old whiskies, which had spent varying amounts of time in sherry. So there was, there was one that was quite light and honeyed and sweet and fruity, quite typical of Balvenie. And there was two which were much darker and deeper and richer and more complex because they'd been in the sherry cask for a whole lot longer. Um, So we've got these three very different casks available to us. And then it was essentially a case of David and I getting together. And I was truly very lucky to be part of this, I think. And uh, David took me through the process he goes through when he's creating a new whiskey. And uh, we mixed uh, mixed a few things up. And we we nosed and tasted the samples and then... David created uh, a number of different whiskies, and we know some space those. And we selected the two that we, we thought were the best. Um, so we uh, we uh, we thought we'd call them Liberated Casks 1 and 2, um, for want of a better name. Liberated because they were liberated or free from the warehouse. Perhaps not quite uh, um, when they should have been. But uh, um, so, so those are the whiskies. Um, both very, uh, both stunning, truly stunning whiskies. Uh, but both a little bit unusual for the Belvedere because it's quite unusual to to be able to taste heavily sherry or heavily sherry influenced Belvenny. A lot of Belvenny tends to be much more dominated by uh, maturation in American oak. Spar- the sherry cask is a lot more sparingly usually, so it tends to be lighter and fresher in style. So this is quite unusual to have some lovely, very very old mature Belvenny from sherry casks. And presumably these. They're not going to be available anywhere else. It's going to be the whiskey show, and that's it. 
Yeah, exactly, Jeff. And that was the whole thing. I thought, you know what, of course we can go with our, you know, very old 40-year-old, which I would have, you know, managed to get my hands on a bottle or something, you know, something else of that ilk. But I think people do have the opportunity to try those in other places. My idea for this was if it's a dream dram, then this should be something you'll never, ever get an opportunity to try anywhere else. Um, so that's why I thought it'd be much more fun to task David with creating truly unique um, money-can't-buy whiskies. Uh, so that was the idea. So it was. It, it, I think the thing for me, though, that was the most exciting part of the experience, is, of course, as well as you know, being able to share these with other people, but to be there in David's blending room and to see someone a master of their art at work and someone who's you know, someone who's spent, someone who intuitively knew what to do with these whiskies. I'm a scientist by training, and if I, I guess, if I was lucky enough to be tasked with creating a whiskey, I'd be very methodical about it, and I'd be, there'd be you know, lots of measuring and calculation about it. David just knows these samples and there's this intuitive sort of knowledge of what to do with them and it was it was just really incredible to just see him kind of just think about this and just create into very 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 quickly to be honest yeah. some amazing whiskey from these very very old casks and that was the thing that excited me and that's just 50 years of experience just yeah. uh, in front of you isn't it there in front of your eyes yeah. so I mean, very exciting the way you described that it brought up an image of me a bit like an artist blending the paints together and do you know what I mean? It's the sort of thing that a computer, okay, it might be able to match a colour or match a hue, but to actually get the whole package right, do you know what I mean? It's something that the artist's eye tends to do more than anything else. I think that's right, and it is an art, and it is a craft, and it's not a science, I think, whiskey making. Yeah. And actually, I know we're going to talk about the distillery more at some point, but, um, you know, I think, actually, um, what goes on at the Belvendi Distillery is much more about art the art of distillation and, and the craft of traditional whiskey making. Yeah. Well, let's talk it, about it's that. Scientific process. Yeah, let's cool, talk yeah, about sure. That in just a second, Andrew. Just to finish the first question, I'm guessing that that liberated one and two went down well at the show, that there was a fair demand for it. There was. A, a huge number of people came and spent there. They're just... The, that came and uh, came and uh, and chose to try those whiskies just to set the scene. Um, the, the the dream dram is obtainable by exchanging your one and only token that you get when you come into the show for just one what one of the one of the dream drams in the room. And it was quite nice to see that lots and lots of people chose to uh, spend their dream dram token on on this both this balvenie that we created especially for the show. So it went down very very well, and there were lots of comments like. You know, this is one of the best whiskies in the room, if not the best whiskey. Um, I actually went round and had the pleasure of trying a few other drums, and uh, I don't think there was, uh, I don't think there was anything else that quite matched. Maybe, maybe one or two that you know were, were special and yeah. stopped you in your tracks. But I think it really stand out. But I think for people, two reasons, I guess. Well, for, well, firstly, truly amazing old whiskey. Um, Secondly, uh, a truly unique experience liberated from the distillery just for the show. But thirdly, we were actually serving that whiskey in a slightly more interesting way. Rather than pouring it from a bottle, we were using what's known as a, a, as a dipping dog, which was a tool, essentially a piece of copper piping with a, with a disc soldered into the bottom. This was a tool that distillery workers would wear concealed down their trouser leg tied to a bit of string. And when there was an opportunity, they could go into a warehouse, they could drop this little copper tube into a cask and liberate or uh, steal, I guess, a, a, a dram of whiskey for that evening. 
And this is, um, you know, this is something that's gone on at distilleries for years and years and years. And of course, probably, it, well, I'm, I know for sure it would have happened at the Belvenue Distillery. Uh, Dennis, our coppersmith, who's our resident coppersmith at the distillery, he's been there for over 50 years. And I know unofficially he's made lots of these uh, and, and used them himself. Um, so we, we, we use these, we use these copper dipping dogs as they're known. These tools, these old tools that distillery workers used to, to steal whiskey, we use these to serve the whiskey directly from uh, casks at the at the whiskey show. So that made it a little bit more fun as well, and that was obviously attractive people. So there's a great whiskey as well as an interesting experience. Yes, yeah, yeah, something steep, something steeped in whiskey history, uh, and a great story to tell about about you know how this would on. Because of course, as you know, Jim, whiskey's all about great stories, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. agree with you more. Yeah. I really couldn't. How do most people know of Belvinia? And, and your experience of the Dream Dram, I think, is a testament to that. Because, of course, if you've got just one token, you're going up for, towards a whiskey that you've never tasted before, and you're going to use your one token. That's a leap of faith, isn't it? You, you, you have to have, in the back of your mind, some sense of, yeah, I can trust I'm going to get a good experience out of it. Um, so I think most people will know of Belvini. We know that you make whiskey, we know you make good whiskey, but what do you think is the overall role of the distillery itself? Yes, um, what, interesting question. Um, do, do you know what, Jim? This is something very genuine from myself, so the way I see the distillery. As well as the being what is essentially probably a medium-sized distillery in the grand scheme of things up there in Dufton, uh, up in space in Scotland, uh, producing whiskey that uh, you know is actually found all over the world. Yeah. Is I actually see the Balvenie Distillery as as almost uh, like I suppose a museum, if you like, to the art and craft of traditional whiskey making. Mm. And the reason I say that, the reason I say that is unlike many other distilleries in Scotland these days, which are maybe not quite fully the same romantic idea that lives in whiskey enthusiast minds. You know, many of them are really very automated, uh, computerized production plants. But then is this distillery that's still very, very traditional where whiskey is still made in a very old-fashioned way and where, I think importantly, the entire whiskey-making process still happens. You know, very few distilleries still carry out all of the whiskey-making process. And by that, what I mean is that Belvenie, we actually still grow barley right, in fields around the distillery, and that barley is used to make our whiskey. So every bottle of Belvenie contains, contains spirit that was created from barley grown in fields around the Belvenie distillery. We, we actually also still malt that barley uh, in, on a, in a traditional floor maltings. Uh, this is, again, the old-fashioned way as, as to how the barley would be prepared or malted for the whiskey, before the whiskey-making process proper. Um, you know, most distilleries these days will have commercially malted barley delivered to them. That might, that'll, be, that'll be being malted on an industrial scale in huge uh, industrial apparatus. So, already we still do this old-fashioned floor malting, which um, is a wonderfully romantic thing, uh, as, um, as well as you know, sort of the start of great whiskey making. So we still grow our own barley and still malt our own barley. Very, very unusual for a distillery uh, to do that in Scotland. We um, we still have a, a dedicated team of keepers at the distillery who tend to and look after our casks. Um, I don't think there's many distilleries where you would be able to go and see an active cooperage these days, although 
probably up at, by the, you know, up until about the mid-1950s, almost every Scotch whisky distillery would have had a cooperage associated with it. Mostly now distilleries use commercial cooperage. Well, at Balvenie Distillery, um, the family who own the business, because we're an independent family business, the family have decided to maintain their own cooperage. Um, and the reason for that is, well, I think there's very much an attitude of fierce, well, there's fierce independence and there's an attitude if you want done things done properly, do them yourselves and retain the skills you need to do these things uh, within the company. So we have a team of eight dedicated keepers who look after the cast. And remember, I mean, I know you know this, Jim, but, you know, probably 70, 80% of all the flavour and character that we talk about in our whiskies, you know, particularly lots of the lovely sweetness and spiciness in the whisky, is derived from the cask. Mm. And you can make the best spirit in the world which, but if you fill it into badly, poorly maintained casks, then you're not going to end up with great whiskey 12 or 20 years later. So we look after those casks ourselves to ensure that this great spirit we make at the distillery ends up as great whiskey in many years to come. Um, another thing that's unusual is we have, a, I've mentioned him already, Dennis McBain, our coppersmith. We have, I think we are the only distillery I know of in probably in the world that has a dedicated coppersmith resident at the distillery to look after the stills. And in in the same way that the casks are absolutely fundamental to creating great mature whiskey, well-maintained uh, stills are absolutely fundamental to creating good quality spirits. Because remember, it's, you know, it's the, it's the stills that give a unique character to the whiskey. Um, so again, in, in, in line with this sort of fierce independent spirit, no pun intended, of, of this family business, we keep our own resident coppersmith, Dennis McBain. So, um, yeah, you start, I think what you start to see, you know, all these different elements is, is a unique and unusual distillery where things have been done in a very old-fashioned, traditional way, and the whiskey's truly been made by hand. Um, and, and I think that sets us aside from many other distilleries in Scotland to the point of making us unique, and, 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 and which is why I, when I talk about this distillery, to, to groups of people when we're tasting our whiskies, I refer to this museum, uh, to the art and craft of whisky making. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Um, but I guess one of the things that's going through my mind is that, okay, part of the role of the, of the distillery is to make whisky. Yeah. Part of the role of the, of the distillery has also now extended to become a living museum where yeah. some of these crafts, these skills, these arts are being preserved. It's mm -hmm. a place where I, I presume people can go and, and look at that and can learn from it. But there's also another aspect to this, which is it's the culture that's being kept alive, and it's also yeah. you're, you're providing some local employment. Because one of the things I'm picking up from you from this is it's making the process itself local. Yeah, okay, I guess that's a, a very important point, and I've, you know, I've got carried away with conjuring up this wonderful picture of what goes on there. Actually, yes, it is about the people and their skills and crafts, and the, the, the distillery does perform an important function in keeping people employed and keeping these traditional skills actually alive and, and going, because the reality is if you visit most distilleries, you don't see too many people around these days. In fact, a lot of Scotch whisky distilleries are run uh, by computers and we'll have just one guy looking after the entire place during any one shift. Mm. At the Balvenie distillery you'll see lots and lots of people all doing employed in their own different ta uh, their own different tasks. Um, so you will see Maltman, Maltin Barley, you will see a coppersmith, you will see keepers tending to the casks. Um, I, I suppose the important thing is that 
it's very easy to succumb to automating the discovery and, you know, giving up on this stuff. Of course, as soon as you do that, very quickly, within a generation, these skills are lost and gone, for, and gone, and gone forever. Um, so I guess, yes, you're right, as well as, uh, you know, function as a distillery producing whiskey all over the world, as well as being as a museum, it's also this place where we are preserving these traditional crafts. So, yeah, it, good point, yeah. yeah. Um, is that a help, though, or is that more of a hindrance to you? I mean, I'm, I'm aware that whiskey <laughs> itself is a, is like, it's a huge global market now. Yeah. Doing, making whiskey the way that you're making it, trying to compete against these other companies that do use automation and stuff, do you find that is um, a hindrance to you, or is it, does it help get into the niche market? Or? Uh, do you know what? Uh, that, okay, there's another interesting question. Um, the reality is, Jim, that this is probably not the most cost-effective way of, of making good scotch malt whiskey. Yeah. Um, I, I, I always, I'm kind of pretty sure if accountants came in, and these accountants have run lots of distilleries, remember, if accountants came into the Valvinia distillery, they would, they, 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 they'd go, you know, they'd think it was crazy. Um, so, is it a hindrance? It's certainly not something I, and I don't think the business sees as a, as a hindrance, but it certainly isn't necessarily the most cost-effective way of running the distillery. But the thing is, as I've said already, you know, we're, we're, the distillery is owned and run and managed by an independent business. In fact, the same family, the direct descendants of our founder, Mr. William Grant, who built the distillery in 1892 and first made whiskey there in 1890, 1893. Um, the family, I think, don't always think just about the bottom line it's not just about generating the most profit um, and therefore we have the luxury of being able to keep these traditional girls and crafts alive uh, because we believe they're important we believe that actually if you make this whiskey in this way then when you make when you do things by hand then there's a greater uh, care and the uh, what's the expression I'm looking for there's more attention to detail and therefore, the result is that you make much better whiskey. Um, so, I don't, certainly don't see it as a hindrance because the result is the best whiskey that we can make. Mm. I mean, I think uh, I doubt not... that. There's one of the things that 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 I like to see in a whiskey that you do tend to get much, much more using the, the approach that you guys are using is character. Yeah. You know okay. I mean? And uh, yeah. Uh, whiskey that can come out of huge stills that can churn out with money profit being the main objective there's there's that loss of individual character which i'm so grateful that gods like yourself are out there making what i consider to be the real stuff but yeah, we've, we've spoken about here about history about traditional yeah. skills and stuff like that Belvini's also got a bit of a reputation for innovation and creativity now that must still be an important aspect of, of the distillery. Uh, it, for sure, and actually, I think uh, that's something else that I love talking about about this distillery. And I think there's this wonderfully interesting juxtaposition between tradition and innovation at the Balvenie Distillery. At the fore, at the forefront of this distillery, the man making whiskey is Mr. David Stewart, who's of course been making the Balvenie uh, for for fifty years. Actually, you've got one of the most 
innovative, progressive, experimental whiskey makers in the industry. A man who quite fortunately works for this company where um, where he has the freedom to express himself and experiment in this way. That that's the man producing the whiskies from the that's the man selecting these mature casks of whiskey and creating the whiskey that go in what we all get to drink. Of course, as I've said already, actually the distillery and the guys making the the spirit that's built into these casks, the distillery is incredibly traditional and everything being done in an old-fashioned way and by hand. So I always find that an incredible and a really interesting juxtaposition. Um, the most, one of the most progressive, innovative whiskey makers in the industry, making whiskies, actually distilled at one of the most traditional distilleries in, in Scotland. Um, just to give you, uh, actually just to sort of pick up on this idea and, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, David being experimental and progressive and innovative, um, I think, um, I'll get this out in a minute, um, one of the interesting things for me was, was finding out that actually it was David Stewart in the early 80s, I think around about 1983, that first, that, that pioneered and, and first carried out this process that now all whiskey enthusiasts refer to as finishing or finished or additional cask maturation. So this idea that we mature whiskey in usually traditional American bourbon barrels and then transfer that whiskey for just short periods of time, a few months, to other types of casks, port casks, sherry casks, rum casks, all sorts of different casks have been used just very, for very short periods at the end of maturation to tweak and change and add additional character to those mature whiskies. You know, we're all familiar with all of these different products that are out there for us to enjoy now. Actually, it was David, David that pioneered that technique way back in the early 1980s when he was creating what we now call Belvini Doublewood, but back then was actually what he was creating was the whiskey, was a whiskey uh, which was sold as Belvini Classic, uh, which some of us you know may have been lucky enough to taste. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's an example of David, uh, you know, really well, a major step change in the way whiskey makers were working, something that profoundly changed the industry. And, and the way whiskey was being was being put together. I guess, um, sorry, Adam, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but I guess in a way, if you are running a distillery where there is so much traditional craft being used, <coughs> it's actually, in some ways, easier to be creative and innovative than it would be in a more of an automated system because you've got more of that hands-on control, flexibility. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, and you have more true. feedback from the process than you would do sat behind some computer screen. Yeah, I, 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 true. And I think, well, I mean, just something that immediately springs to mind is this, you know, having having retained that traditional floor maltings and, of course, associated with it a traditional malt kiln where the barley's dried post-malting before it's ground down into grist to make uh, and, and, and before mashing, having retained that traditional floor maltings and kiln means we have a bit of kit that is a fundamental part of the whiskey making process that most others don't and therefore if we want to muck about and play with that, if David wants to experiment with that, he can't. And of course, he has the freedom and permission to do that because the family, you know, as a family business that so we're allowed to do that. And there was actually... Uh, there was a, I, I think it was put, uh, I, I put it across really nicely last week when I was talking to, um, talking to uh, a journalist about the, 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 the dream drum we were talking about earlier. And this idea that at the Balvenie distillery, everything's actually pretty close at hand, you know. We can access everything we want in the whiskey making process and are able to do this stuff. 
And, you know, I mean, that's one of the we could create this unique brand for the whiskey show because, you know, everything's there for us to do that and the freedom to do that, freedom from, you know, the rigidity of, 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 of you know, perhaps a, a bigger a bigger industry. Um, so, I don't know, I think that's a sort of, does that answer or kind yeah, of add to what you're saying? Yeah. Um, the, the, the one other thing on that kind of innovation thing, you know, so that, and I, I talked about, you know, David pioneering this technique of, of you know, additional cast maturation or finishing in the early 18, early 1980s, actually roll forward to 2010, 2011, and David's still at it, and, you know, he's, a, he's had a habitual experimenter. One of the things he's done recently and um, is create a whiskey, uh, or he's created a, a sort of a style of Balvenie, which as you'll know is, 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 is unusual for Balvenie. If we talk about Balvenie, we typically think of a, of a honeyed, sweet, typical uh, space-side style of single malt. Well, David, just for a bit of fun, has created Balvenie that has a peaty character to it. And he's done that not by using heavily peated barley um, and using that for the to, to, to make spirit, taking mature Balvenie whiskey that's been matured in unpeated spirit that's been matured in American oak and then transferring that or finishing that in um, casts that had previously held heavily peated Balvenie spirit. So in the same way that you would create double wood by finishing the, the whiskey in a sherry cask, if you like, or a cask seasoned with sherry, in this case, you're finishing adding additional character and complexity to the mature whiskey by putting it in a cask that had been seasoned, if you like, for want of a better word, with heavily peated spirit. Does that make sense? Sure, it does. And that, that's very, very unusual. Uh, I think probably to the point of being unique. And, and of course, not happy with that. Not only did he did he do that, then he also married that whiskey matured in um, um, these these peaty casks with whiskey that had been finished or had additional short period of maturation in brand new virgin oak, new new oak casks. Um, and he married those two different uh, finishes, if you like, together to create Balvany Peated Cast 17-year-old, which is, again, you know, I think that, as far as I know, to bring or to marry together two different finishes is, again, another unique uh, step in the whiskey-making, uh, whiskey-creation process. So that was just me, uh, you know, getting a chance to talk about another one of David's wonderful mm -hmm. experiments and, you know, actually now bringing together two different finishes. And So that's Balvany Peated Cask uh, 17-year-old. Interesting, different... Um, and uh, just to, again, I, I bring it out of tasting because I think it really does belies this idea about you know this this juxtaposition between traditional distillery and innovative whiskey maker. Hmm. Andrew, can I ask you just one more question? Yeah, sure. Is, um, if anybody goes onto to the Belvini website mm. and has a look at it, which is what obviously I, I have done, mm. one of the impressions that I got from looking at that is that. Education is something that you guys are considering to be really important. I'm yeah. just wondering whether that I'm getting the right idea here, and if so, why? Well, if you get that idea, great. That's exactly what we said, what we aim to do with the Balvenie website, and particularly the area you've probably found yourself in, which we call Warehouse 24, which is this little subsection of the site which is reserved just for people who are members of Warehouse 24. Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a member, a club of whiskey enthusiasts who uh, come to the Balvenie website. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely right, we're trying to build into the website there um, resources for people to learn from. We know that most whiskey enthusiasts are just like yourself, absolutely hungry, you know, really hungry for knowledge about how whiskey is made and about the distilleries and all that sort of stuff. 
So, um, and uh, I think we're also in this wonderful, we're also in this great position as a distillery to educate people about whiskey. If you think about it, as I've already said, we carry out the entire whiskey making process. So if you want to learn how whiskey's made, Melbourne well, is a pretty good place to go and learn to make, learn how whiskey's made because everything happens there at the distillery as opposed to parts of it happening at the distillery and other parts elsewhere. Also, if you look at our range of whiskies, I also find that incredibly interesting and a great tool for education because within that range of whiskies, you've got all the sorts of different ways that you'll find whiskey. You've got a single cast bottle in our 15-year-old single barrel. There's always a single cast bottling. You've got a traditional marriage in Belvenny Signature, so whiskey created by marrying together whiskey matured in three different types of casks, blended together once it's matured and then bottled, that's Belvenny Signature. You've got a number of different finishes, Belvenny Doublewood finished in sherry cask, Belvenny Portwood 21 finished in port pipes. You've got the PT cask, which we've already talked about. So you've got this whole range of whiskies which can be used to educate people about yeah, how can you find single malt whiskey? In what different ways will you discover it and be able to drink it? So all of that, um, what we've done on the website is, well, one of the things what we've done on the website is create a series of very, very short video film clips that answer, in which we've interviewed independent experts from the industry, not just people from William Grant and some people from the Dalvany Distillery, but people like Charlie McLean, famous independent whiskey historian, whiskey historian, whiskey writer, whiskey noser and taster. People like Charlie, um, people, all sorts of other independent experts from the industry. We've asked them the questions that people like me as whiskey ambassadors get asked every single day. We've filmed their responses to those questions and we've put them up there on the website as part of what we've called the, Balvenie, the, the, the Whiskey Academy. And essentially what's, that, what's there then is a learning resource. So if you decide you want to know a little bit about chill filtration and why it's important or does terroir have an impact on the character of whiskey, there's a little video clip in there that you can watch and get the answers from the experts and it can access that independent expert knowledge, not of any whiskey academy. And of course there's a whole load of other stuff within on the website where you can that's useful to learn about whiskey. And essentially what I think it does is create a place where the a community of people who love whiskey can come together to exchange thoughts, feelings and their passion for whiskey and learn at the same time. Fantastic. Andrew, that's, yeah. that's wonderful. Thank you ever so much for your time. Um, one thing I will say is a testament to Belvini, really, isn't it, that we've managed to get through all this and not one mention of Glenfiddich. <laughs> yeah, no, not because I didn't want to mention it, um, just because I guess, I mean, well, look, I'm clearly incredibly passionate and uh, excited about the Belvini. Yeah, well, well, we should give it a mention. It, it, the Glenfiddich, our sister distillery, it stands a few hundred metres uh, from the Belvini distillery up there in Dufton in Speyside. It is actually, I guess, where Balvenie all started because, of course, uh, William Grant built uh, the Glenfiddich Distillery in 1886, first made whiskey there on Christmas Day in 1870, uh, 1887. I'm starting to say Richard Patterson. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and remember, I mean, the, reality, the, 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 the late 1800s were just like they are now. Were, the late 1800s were, was an incredibly exciting time for the Scotch whiskey industry. Scotch whiskey was booming, and there was an ever-increasing demand for Scotch whiskey. And 
Grout was not, not, he was an incredibly ambitious man, quite clearly. You know, he saved his entire life to build the Glenfiddich distillery. He wasn't a man to miss an opportunity. And when faced with an increasing demand for his whiskey, he set out to build a second distillery. And of course, he built the Belvedere distillery. Mm. And, uh, typical of William Grant, you know, do things as, um, do things as cost effectively as possible. You know, he set about building a, a brand new distillery in an old 18th century mansion with bits and pieces from other distilleries around Scotland. And of course, that became the Belvenny and, and, and pretty much looks today like it did when he built it, you know. Um, so, anyway, yeah, I guess we owe some of our, some of our success to, to, to Glenfiddich. And I guess if it weren't for the fact that Glenfiddich, um, uh, Glenfiddich makes uh, lots and lots of money, perhaps we wouldn't have the luxury of uh, keeping our little museum going. So, also, yeah. It also adds a bit of interest, doesn't it? Because I know about the history of, of Glenfiddich and uh, the, the origins of Belvini uh, <coughs> and the fact that really you've got the same water source and all this sort of business, but I, I've often used the two of you um, as an example when I've, when I've been talking to people about whiskey, about the differences, because there you've got two distilleries, same company, same original roots in many ways, but... Yeah. From that point onwards, they've gone their separate lives. They've developed in different ways, and what you've ended up with are two distinctly different whiskies. Yeah, I, I, do, I, do, I, do, I think I think God, there's a whole lot to say around that, and and, and for, to talk about Gunfiddich, I think what you should call my colleague Jamie Miller sure, and speak to him. But what I would say is, you're absolutely right. Firstly, two distilleries side by side, which share a lot of history, producing two very different styles of whiskey. Um, and I think that, for me, uh, is, you know, really just to uh, prove that this idea that where the distillery is and where the water is drawn from isn't what makes each of those whiskey distilleries produce a unique, different style of spirit. It's all down to what goes on at the distillery, you know, size, shape of the still, and all sorts of other factors that, that give each individual distillery spirit its unique character. I mean, that's a whole other uh, thing to kind of uh, discuss. But the other thing, yes, two distilleries that, yes, started life pretty much, you know, well, you know, the same family business. They've gone their separate ways. But when we talked about a huge amount, and we talked about it being, you know, this, you know, this real hit museum. Glenfiddich, I guess almost the opposite, actually a leader of the Scottish malt whiskey category. In fact, it was Glenfiddich that quite literally put the concept of single malt whiskey on the world's lips. And it was in, I think, 1963 that Glenfiddich was first bottled as a, as a branded single malt whiskey product, and of course it was the first of those, uh, of, 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 you know, this now huge diverse array of, of single malt whiskies. So, so Glenfiddich performs quite a different role, you know, leading the category, um, and, uh, you know, perhaps it's, it's, it's Glenfiddich that goes and seeks out all those people new to whiskey and brings them in. Uh, before they, they discover discover Balvenny. But I really think it'd be well worth having a chat with Jamie Milne at some point and talking to him about Glenfiddich because there's a whole wonderful story there yeah. about, um, you know, true pioneers in the whiskey industry. Mr. William Grant himself, our founder, pioneering, you know, the pioneering whiskey production back then in the late 1800s, but it's still, it's, you know, a distillery that still to this day continues to pioneer the category. So talk to Jamie. I will do. Andrew, thank you ever so much for your time. Now, I'd like to end this episode by saying that if you'd like to read an interview with Stuart Watts, distillery manager for Belvinnie, 
Glenfiddich and Kenivy Distillery. Then look at page 93 of the Malt Whiskey Yearbook 2012. Also, if you're on Twitter, get online on the 24th of October, I think around 7pm GMT, where there's going to be an online Twitter tasting of the new Tun 1401, of which I'm proud to be part of. And as a final note, we have mentioned Glenfiddich in this episode about Balvinie. We should also mention its other sibling, Canine so closely related and even shares some of the site, but not released as a single more. Interested? Try searching for Hazelwood Reserve. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at themaltedmuse.com. There's the website www.themaltedmuse.com. And there's also Twitter, Twitter at themaltedmuse. So thank you again for listening. I hope you'll listen next week. And until then, thank you and goodbye.